the Old Testament book of Micah, chapter 5. I've got these studs handing out lyrics to a song this morning. This, this little series that we've entitled Christmas Songs, we're looking at popular Christmas carols through the lens of Scripture. Last week, we considered the song Joy to the World, and our theme was joy. This Sunday, we're looking at the song, O Little Town of Bethlehem, and our theme is peace. And we're going to sing this song at the end, but right now, you, that you have the lyrics in your hand, just look at those with me. Let's just look at those quickly. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by, yet in thy dark street shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. For Christ is born of Mary and gathered all above, while mortals sleep the angels keep their watch of wondering love. O morning stars together proclaim the holy birth, and praises sing to God the King and peace to all the earth. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him, still the dear Christ enters in. Now, I think when we look at that, probably your first impression is the same as mine. And you go, well, that's nice. Isn't that nice? Well, it's way, way bigger than we can imagine. And let me say also, the lyrics, while they're beautiful, are not really historically accurate. In Micah chapter 5, we see kind of the, the genesis of this song. And I'm going to read beginning with verse 1. Mobilize, marshal your troops. The enemy is laying siege to Jerusalem. They will strike Israel's leader in the face with a rod. Ouch. Now, we don't know a lot about Micah. We know that he was a prophet. He was from the village of Morasheth, which is about 25 miles south of Jerusalem in kind of a very rural area. And Micah shares this prophecy about 700 years before Jesus was born. Now, in this setting, the context is that Israel was apostate. In other words, because of their rebellion and their self-centeredness, they had separated themselves from God. And Micah gives us a historical record of what he is seeing, and he reports scenes of unspeakable violence and injustice. For example, in Micah 2, it says, You've evicted women from their pleasant homes and forever stripped their children of all that God would give them. In chapter 3, he said, listen, you leaders of Israel, you're supposed to know right from wrong, but you are the ones who hate good and love evil. You skin my people alive and tear the flesh from their bones. Now, folks, this is not Israel's enemies. This is Israel's leaders. But rest assured, Israel's enemies are on the way. And Micah is speaking to the people of Israel, trying to tell them that Assyria is going to redemptively fix the apostasy in Israel. Now, they're going to repent, and Israel is going to be restored, and Micah also prophesies hope and restoration. But first of all, they're going to be destroyed because of their sinfulness. Now, when I read Micah 5, it's hard to miss 
the parallels in our culture. Anybody else feel like maybe we're on the brink of catastrophe in our country? My mom was here for a couple of weeks and she flew home yesterday. We had such a great time while my mom was here. We had a bit of an adventure too. She, is, she lives in California for those that don't know. And um, this years and years ago, before my dad died, we got a little iPad and sent it out with her. And it's, it's worn out. It stopped working. She also had an ancient iPhone, an iPhone like minus four or something. So it wouldn't update anymore. So I said, Mom, bring all that stuff with you when you come. Put it in your suitcase, and we'll work on it. So while she was here, we got a new iPad, and we got a new iPhone. And for all the blessings that that is, it is also a terrible crisis for my mom. She, she said, it's like trying to learn a new language I don't want to know anymore. And I, I get it. I understand that. And we also talked about kind of the oppressive nature of the internet, right? It's almost too much information. It's hard to filter this out. So that was all kind of a struggle. Then this last Monday evening, my son and daughter-in-law and grandchildren came over to our house. My daughter-in-law is an ER nurse. She had to work on Thanksgiving. So we celebrated Thanksgiving on Monday night and we ate a lot of Thanksgiving food. It was great. And we got out the photo, old pictures and the old yearbooks and we just laughed and we ate more Thanksgiving food, and we laughed some more, and we ate more Thanksgiving food. And the whole evening was just so comforting. Well, I was thinking about that as I was putting this message together. And I was asking myself, why are moments like that so reassuring? Why do we love to go through memories and look at those old pictures and the stupid photos in the yearbook? Well, I think it's probably because it's a, it's a visit to a simpler time. For us, our world feels like it's just spinning out of control, and frankly, we've come to the point now where it feels like it's unfixable, like it's gotten so bad so fast. You want to do something, but what? So, Micah's message to Israel is our kings have failed us. We don't need a new king, what we need is a savior. This is verse 2. In Micah 5. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah. Judah, yet a ruler of Israel, whose origins are in the distant past, will come from you on my behalf. The people of Israel will be abandoned to their enemies until the woman in labor gives birth. Then at last his fellow countrymen will return from exile to their own land. And he will stand to lead his flock with the Lord's strength in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Then his people will live there undisturbed, for he'll be highly honored around the world, and he will be the source of our peace. Now we know that Micah is pointing ahead 700 years to the incarnation, to the coming of Jesus. But the people that Micah is preaching to think that he's talking about right now. They think Micah is talking about a new king who will come right now and deliver them out of their present crisis. But that doesn't work at all because 
According to Micah, we see three markers or th three identifying qualifications of this new ruler. And it says, first of all, he's going to be a shepherd. Their anointed leader will be one who pursues and protects. Now, Israel was looking for a government to deliver them, and so are we. Israel was looking for God to raise up a warrior king, a leader with great authority, who with a word could make the nations tremble, a leader who had a reputation for winning. That's why they missed Jesus when he showed up, because he was meek and humble and soft-spoken with a servant's heart. He was a nobody. Jesus was a shepherd, and he loved that image of shepherd. Jesus loved to refer to himself as a shepherd. Now, some may say, wait a minute, Randy. It's 700 years before Jesus is going to show up, and Micah says his origins were in the distant past. It can't be referring to Jesus then. Well, let me ask you a question. Where was Jesus before he came to earth as a baby? You can't get more distant past than never have a beginning. Infinite in the past. Jesus' origins were from the distant past. He was a shepherd. The second qualification of Israel's Savior will be his people would live undisturbed. At Christmas, we love this image of a sweet baby in a manger, a vulnerable infant, a lowly, humble king. But the kings in Micah's day were not humble. They were warriors. The kings in Micah's day were not lowly. They sought conflict. They sought conquest. And again, I can't help but think of similarities in our own world. Our political system just seems to be ruined beyond repair. And I'm not just talking about the division. I'm talking about the anger the way people treat each other, and the way people talk to each other. And frankly, we shouldn't be surprised because Jesus said it would be this way in the last days. This is Matthew chapter 24. Jesus said, you'll hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. These things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Paul wrote to Timothy, in the last days, there will be very difficult times for people will love only themselves and their money. They'll be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents and ungrateful. They'll consider nothing sacred. They'll be unloving and unforgiving. They'll slander others and have no self-control. Does that sound at all familiar? They'll be cruel and hate what is good. They'll betray their friends, be reckless, be pulled up with or puffed up with pride and love pleasure rather than God. They'll act religious, but they'll reject the power that could make them godly. But the Bible says clearly that God's plan for his church in the last days is that we would live quiet, undisturbed lives. That's what 1 Thessalonians 4 says. Church, listen, we cannot let ourselves be sucked into these controversies. That's the way of the world, not the way of the coming king. I love this line in the, in the Christmas carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem, that says, The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. And I know that for me, I long for an America from my past. 
That's why we get a little misty when we look at old yearbooks. But the truth is, our hopes and fears can never be met in a government. Our hopes and fears cannot be met in a country, in national pride, just like Israel's hopes and fears could not be met in a warrior king or in a village called Bethlehem. Our hopes and fears can only be met in the one who came from Bethlehem. Which brings us to the third qualification of the Savior Israel was looking for, and that he will bring peace. I get accused by my family from, from time to time to have a little of Scrooge's blood running through my veins. And it's not that I hate Christmas. I don't hate Christmas. I truly love Christmas, but I've got an idea of what Christmas is supposed to be. I noticed again, Angel talked about the distractions connected to the season, and, and they're, they're, it's real. It's a little scary. In fact, I hate this feeling, oh, if we can just survive the next few weeks, if we can just get through the Christmas season, right? I hear people say, well, I finally got Christmas out of the shed or out of the attic. Or someone else said, did you get all your Christmas bought? I know what they're talking about, and I'm not saying that's evil, but have we missed the point? The Christmas celebration that the church traditionally celebrates is called Advent. And the celebration of Advent is for us, God's people, to prepare our hearts for Christ's arrival in the sense that he came once, and that was amazing, but now he's coming again. He's going to come a second time. How would we prepare our hearts for the arrival of Jesus Christ? And I'm telling you, Advent, the idea of Advent, sure flies in the face of the idea of 21st century Christmas. Christmas today is about decorations and parties and shopping, and that's not evil, but then it's more and bigger and better and a hurry and a hustle and bustle and Christmas has been co-opted by consumers and the meaning has been sucked out of it. Where is margin in our lives? Where is the moment for Advent? Where is the time that we could ever sit and be still and prepare our hearts for the coming of that quiet baby in a manger? I really feel like the Lord has convicted me about this lately. I've come to believe that peace and passion are opposites. When I feel this compulsion in my life for more, hurry, build, get busy, be efficient, be effective, I realize that sucking peace out of my life that Jesus wants to give to me. We live our lives at, even away from Christmas at such a frenetic pace. It's become a badge of honor to be busy, to have a full calendar, always striving to achieve, always wanting to, to achieve and, and, and experience more, more, more. Could it be a control issue? Are we just looking at something that we can control ourselves? Life flies by and it's, it's easy to feel out of control. It's, the kids talk about FOMO, fear of missing out, and a lot of us struggle with that malady. Well, the fact, let me tell you the truth. Here's the truth. I love you. Here's the truth. You're dying. And that's the plan. It's not that we're just destined to die. We're designed to die. It's not a bug, it's a feature. 
And the point is, I don't want to get to the end of my life and realize I'd wasted my time on something that didn't matter. I want to be consumed with important stuff. I don't want to miss the important stuff. So let me ask you a question. Why are we in such a hurry? What are we chasing after? What are we trying to, to get? Can you see where passion is the enemy of peace? This song says the hopes and fears of all the years are met in Bethlehem. And it was certainly true for the wise men. What a great story. Read about Matthew chapter 3. These, these scientists, these astrologers showed up from the east. We don't know how many there were. We, we sing there were three of them, but there, there were only three gifts. There, no telling how many. There was, I'm sure there was a lot of people in their convoy because they'd come from far, far away. Um, experts say maybe Persia, where Daniel had prophesied about Jesus, or maybe even China. But they came from a long way. The journey probably took months. And the Bible says they saw a star. But I want you to know they did not pursue this star out of some celestial fascination. Because Matthew 2, 2 says, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? What are they looking for? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So even in, deep in the hearts of these pagan scientists, there's something that compels them to seek Jesus. And their hopes are met in Bethlehem by a baby. But Herod, Herod his, his fears were met in Bethlehem kind of an interesting story. Herod is an integral character in the, in the Christmas story. You know that Herod really wasn't even a king? Herod's mother was a Jew, and his father was a high-placed official in Caesar Augustus' government. And so Herod led the army that conquered Judah, and he actually had Antigonus, who was the Parthian king, assassinated. And he was named at first the provincial governor and then the tetrarch of Judea, but Herod named himself king. And you think Caesar wouldn't let that go, but because Herod's father was a buddy of Caesar, Caesar didn't rock the boat. So the, the problem was Herod, because he was a self-proclaimed king, lived his entire life in paranoia. He was terrified that he would be exposed as a fraud, and the thing that he feared the most was that his, his little thin layer of power and authority would be stripped away. So when these exotic strangers from Persia or China showed up and said, where's the king? We, we heard about this king. How do you think Herod felt? So he calls in his Jewish advisors. You've spoken about the Messiah. You've, you've, you've spoken about prophecies of this coming king. Where's he supposed to be born? And they said, in Bethlehem of Judea. And went on to quote Micah 5.2. How about that? So here's the takeaway for us as far as I'm concerned. Let's look at the last verse. You still got the lyrics there of a little town of Bethlehem? Look at the last verse. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend on us, we pray. Why? Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell, O come to us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel. Now, Micah is prophesying to a culture on the brink of destruction, literally destruction. In fact, he tells them over and over, you've turned your back on God, 
God is going to use foreign powers to humiliate you. God is going to bring justice on you through your enemies. But then he says in verse 2, a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past will come from you on the Father's behalf. And he's going to show up in the most likely of places. Micah said this little obscure farm village called Bethlehem. Verse 4 says, he'll stand to lead his flock with the Lord, strengthen the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Then his people will live there undisturbed, for he will be highly honored where? Around the world, and he will be the source of their peace. And of course, we know with a view of retrospect that 700 years later, the Messiah showed up. The incarnation, God became man. Emmanuel, God came to live with us. Think about it, came to live with us, be like us. And Micah's prophecy was fulfilled. And now 2,000 years later, Jesus keeps showing up. And folks, that's the point. This is what we can't miss. You know, my wife has been recuperating from surgery and I've been on my best behavior. I've been the supportive husband. So I've watched hour upon hour of Hallmark Christmas movies. And one thing I noticed about all the Hallmark Christmas movies, there's one line that are in every single, no, it doesn't matter the plot, doesn't matter the characters, one line always shows up and it's this. That's what Christmas is really all about. Now they're talking about different things. Sometimes they're talking about lighting the Christmas tree or saving the city from these rabid developers or, or maybe spending time with family, but that's what Christmas is all about. Can I suggest to you that Hallmark doesn't have a clue? <laughs> Folks, Christmas is a gift from God. So don't get distracted by the stuff. And again, not that the stuff is evil. I love all the... I've got grandchildren. I love giving gifts and the wrappings and the lights and everything. But the truth is the hopes and fears of all the years are not met in the trappings of the season. The hopes and fears of all the years are not met in a sterilized, sentimental manger scene with Joseph and Mary and the little baby and they all have halos and it's all clean and a smiling sheep. Listen, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in the cross. Because that's why Jesus came, right into our mess, right into our sin to bring us peace and, and to restore our relationship with God and reconcile us to Him. No other way it could be done except by that Savior that came to bring us peace. In fact, Micah himself says, if you want to turn over two pages to Micah chapter 7, this is what Micah says in verse 18. Where is another God like you who pardons the guilt of the remnant? overlooking the sins of his special people. You'll not stay angry with your people forever because you delight in showing unfailing love. Once again, you'll have compassion on us. You'll trample our sins under your feet and throw them into the depths of the ocean. Listen to me. No matter where you are today, here's the promise of, of Christmas. Shepherd's going to come. He's going to pursue you. And he's going to protect you. And he's going to usher you into a place of calm like you never imagined. In the, in the midst of this confusion and division that we see all around us, he came to bring calm, undisturbed calm. And finally, number three, he's your prince of peace. That means you can stop running. 
That means you can stop hiding behind your calendar because he came to bring peace and you can find forgiveness for your sins. Thank you, Jesus. Words can't express our gratitude that you, you knew us. You knew us and still came. You saw us and still pursued us. You knew what we were all about and you still loved us and gave your life for us. And the cross is testament that our sins are forgiven. And Jesus, I pray this morning for someone who may be here today and is not in relationship with you. Perchance, Lord, there's someone here that's never asked you to be Lord in their lives and they've been trying to make it through life on their own and they're living with unconfessed sin and it's just more than they can bear. Please, Jesus, right now, as they cry out to you, fulfill your promise of forgiveness.